All right, Tim, in the music world, we always talk about, you know, Beatles versus the Rolling Stones, sometimes Blur versus Oasis. But in the summer of 1998, there was a cultural battleground of a slightly different ilk. And this, of course, was the disaster movie showdown between Deep Impact, released in May, and Armageddon, the blockbuster that came out 4th of July weekend, 1998. The similarities between these two are absolutely amazing. They both involve giant rocks that are headed towards Earth. And so what do we do? We send people up in a spaceship to go try to blow up the giant rocks and save the day. Of course, both directors wanted there to sort of be a happy ending, but they couldn't completely avoid the temptation of having, you know, CGI destroying things. So Armageddon decided they're going to go with Meteor Shower, wipes out Paris and a bunch of other cities. Deep Impact, they blow up the rock. The smaller rock ends up hitting Earth, killing, you know, maybe billion people or so, and it gives them an excuse to, you know, have a giant tidal wave that basically wipes out the East Coast, making West Virginia the safest place to live. Yet, of course, Deep Impact tries to sell us that that is somehow a happy ending. You know, only a billion people died, they're going to have a baby, all's good. So I've always been on the Deep Impact side of things. I think Deep Impact is like a slightly more uh, mature movie. Not that that's necessarily saying too much. Uh, I think that that bleakness uh, kind of works. I think that there's sort of a cleverness to it that doesn't quite that Armageddon doesn't quite have. And I think Armageddon, at some points, commits the ultimate sin of a disaster movie in that it's boring. There's actually parts of Armageddon where it's like, I just don't feel like anything's happening. It's boring. And you just can't do that in a disaster movie. But there's no doubt Armageddon has had sort of a longer shelf life in pop culture. We had a classic late era Aerosmith tune that was, you know, that became huge as a result of Armageddon. But I'm just going to leave you with two things from Armageddon that stick with me to this day. First of all, maybe my favorite movie making antidote ever is when early in production, Ben Affleck goes to Michael Bay, the director, and says, hey, why do we think it's easier to train oil drillers to become astronauts than to train astronauts to become oil drillers? Bay told Affleck to shut up. And then finally, I will leave you with one of my favorite lines of any movie ever. I don't even need to set the scene because you can picture it yourself, but there is no other movie. This line would work. And it is just one character looking at the other character and saying, oh man, what are you doing with a gun in space? Everybody was so fixated on the end of the world in 1998 when they should have been fixated on why is Aerosmith on the charts? Why do people care about this band? That song's terrible. Anyways. <laughs> not on our nominee list. Not on our nominee list for 1998. No, these are the 12 best songs from 98 coming up right now on Hall of Songs. Oh!
Welcome, music lovers, loyal listeners to Hall of Songs, the podcast in which two men attempt to determine the greatest songs of all time. I'm Tim Malcolm. I'm Chris Jones. The Super Bowl is over. Hearts were broken. But on the wake of that event, some big announcements for you, Chris, I guess. Uh, Are you going to go see one of the 25 fish shows at MSG coming up later this year? So I've got I I will see him at the man here in Philadelphia. Uh, I will see a few of the MSG shows. I'm going to try to make it to Pittsburgh, maybe six to eight of the summer shows. How about you? You going to do all 25? I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? I have all the money in the world and I have absolutely no taste in music. So I think that'd be a great idea to go. That describes every fish fan. So there you go. That's right. That's it. That's right. We're getting a lot of listeners to this podcast, aren't we? We're doing well. Yep. So welcome everybody to Hall of Songs. We try to figure out the greatest songs ever and how we do that. It's a podcast that we started two years ago where each time out, we spend a lot of time talking about the best songs from a specific year. We started this whole thing by looking at the best songs from 1951. Go back and listen to that episode. It's crazy how far we've advanced. Like, like literally like, you know, in our podcast speaking and our sonic, you know, sort of production. Anyways, <laughs> that was a stellar example of it right there. Yeah, that, we did. I'm telling you, we're doing great. But every two weeks we give you a new year and we present our top 12 at the most songs from that year. And so we've been going ever since 51. We are now coming up on 1998. That is this episode here. After each of those main episodes, we let those songs go onto a ballot that exists at our website, hallofsongs.com. If you're listening to this episode, you could go vote for the songs that you think are worthy of the Hall of Songs. It is the Hall of Fame of songs that we created specifically for this podcast. It has, at this point, a very nice round number, 100 songs. The Hall has 100 songs. So, Chris, give people a taste of what one of those most recent songs was. Oh, I guess I'll give them the top vote getter. The top vote getter from our last election was Wanna Be by the Spice Girls. Uh, then, as Tim alluded to, we're now up at 100. If you've been listening, you know that means there were actually two other songs that got inducted in the last round of voting. But you're going to have to go listen to our results show to figure out what that is. That's right. We're not giving away the entire store here. So that episode is up now. When you're listening to this episode, between the dates of February 19th and 26th, if you go to hallsongs.com, you can vote in the next election. That election is our 44th, I believe, election. And that includes songs released between 1990 and 1998. So the 12 songs that we nominate for this year will be in that ballot. I think the ballot will have about 24 songs or so. So a nice ballot to go through. Not too many songs, but you're going to have to make some choices to get to your votes. You have 10 votes to make. So you have to make some choices to get to those 10. Anything else before we get into 1998? I don't think I'm missing anything, right? No, I guess if you've listened to our results episode, you know that I brought up the uh, England-New Zealand cricket match. Uh, those of us who are you know, inclined will know that England is dominating that match. Uh, they actually declared in their first innings. And last I saw it, New Zealand was 82 for four. So things are going well. That's great. I'm really glad to hear it. Yeah. Stay tuned in two weeks. I'll update you on the next couple test matches. Good stuff. Well, follow more of our insights on cricket at Hall of Cricket <laughs> coming to a podcast store near you. 
1998, Chris, is a really crazy year for me. I'll get into that in a second. But for you, still in college, but almost done, right? Yeah, I was on the five-year plan. So uh, 1998 was the beginning of my fifth year. I graduated in 1999. By this point, I was a full-on film major. I was making movies, uh, uh, living off campus. It was a little bit more of a relaxed lifestyle, but still having a really good time. And uh, yeah, uh, so it, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to talk through these songs because some of them were completely on my radar. Some not at all. This is a really interesting list because as we're going to find out here, it, it it's very indicative of the time because you're going to hear a lot of new sounds and some genres that have been in the ether over the past several years really dominate. And there's going to be some really famous figures that we're going to have in this list, people that we haven't yet talked about. So 98, I think, is a really big transitional year in music where the sounds of sort of modern pop as we know it start to kind of happen here in 98. As for me... Chris, you've moved from your childhood home, I would imagine, correct? I have. Many times. I guess only once. Yes, because it was then you one can, yeah, home. Yeah, yeah, you can never right. go home again. Yeah, there you go. So the home that I grew up in, in October of 1998, we moved from that home. And just a month before that was my first day in high school. I started high school in 1998 in the fall, and it was a huge transition for me. I was coming out of a middle school where I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. I didn't have any friends. I was sort of isolated in a lot of ways and I would go home at night kind of sad. I was kind of lonely and I would listen to a lot of music in my room on the radio. In the summer of 1998, between middle school and high school, I got really close to a couple people in my neighborhood who lived some blocks away that I had to walk to and they went to different schools. They were kids who went to Catholic school. I got to know them really intensely and they became some of my best friends. In fact, my best friend of all of them was this guy named Mike who lived in this row home with a porch and you know, Philadelphia neighborhood. Everybody kind of lives really close together like sardines. And Mike cared for his mom who was a quadriplegic. So he would have to stay home most of the morning and some of the afternoon to wait on her, get whatever she needed, that kind of thing before a nurse came in to continue on with the day. At that point, Mike and I could go out and do whatever we wanted to with our friends, have adventures. But I spent every morning in the summer of 1998 on Mike's porch talking and listening to a lot of music, especially rap music, DMX, It's Dark and Hell is Hot, Mace's Harlem World album. I think Big Punisher's Capital Punishment came out around the same time. I don't know if we were listening to that at that point. Puff Daddy, whatever was popular in rap at that time, we were definitely listening to. And sometimes there was some rock that kind of filtered in. But that was usually reserved for when I went home at the end of the night. And I would listen on my radio in my bedroom to Y100 in Philadelphia, which was the city's alternative rock station. I start high school in September and I'm feeling lonely. I go every day with my brother's good friends who actually went to the same high school as I did, but they were juniors. I was a freshman. I felt definitely out of place. And in my classes freshman year, I was just getting to know a lot of people. And I was feeling overwhelmed. I went to a magnet school where kids came from all over the city. So I didn't know anybody. I felt very overwhelmed. I felt very isolated and still very lonely. My grandmother dies. My grandmother leaves us a lot of money. My dad says, we have an opportunity here to move somewhere else. 
our family left the small neighborhood that we lived in with the raw homes. And we moved all the way up to the very top of Philadelphia where we had a backyard and a front yard and a two-story house that, you know, wasn't a row home that had very small bedrooms. This was an actual house that a family typically lives in. So that was great for the family, but I was really sad leaving because I had met all these friends over the past several months in my neighborhood that I was about to not see much ever again. The last night before we moved out, I was outside with Mike on his porch as usual, just talking one last time before I had to leave and go home for the night. And I still replay in my head that last few minutes where I said goodbye to him and I walked away and I had to go home. And as I got about two blocks away, I started hearing my name being called and I turn around and there's Mike running as fast as he could at me, yelling and just getting to me and hugging me. He wanted to hug me and say bye, then he was going to miss me. I hadn't felt a friendship like that in my life. I hadn't felt anything close to anybody in my life up until that point. I had a lot of family problems in the mid-90s. There was a lot of things going on. This was the first time I felt something really special in a friendship. And I had to leave that. The night that I left, I was in my bedroom listening to the radio one last time. And the last song I listened to was Closing Time by Semisonic. Couldn't think of a more apt song to listen to at that moment. Time for you to go out to the places you were from. Closing time. Time for you to go out to the places you will be from. I know who I want to take me home. I know. So this year, 1998, is a year full of emotions for me. There are a lot of songs here that speak to where I was at the time and what I was feeling and who I was with and what I was trying to get through. And I know that during the length of this podcast, no matter how old you are, there is a year where we've talked about songs that have that same feeling for you. Chris, I know you've talked about that in the past with previous episodes. Give me some time in this episode to sort of work through some emotions. Probably I won't I won't utilize my emotions too much when talking about these songs, but they might come out. But I'll just tell you right now that 1998 is a seminal year for me, as much as a seminal year for a lot of changes in music and transitions. Comes from some other I'll just say you haven't lived until you've heard Closing Time played at 3 a.m. in a Minneapolis bar, likely after losing at the meat raffle. Ah, nothing left the meat <laughs> raffle to change the topic very nicely. <laughs> it is time to give you the top 12 songs from 1998 as chosen by us. Chris, lead us off. All right, leading us off, the band now known as The Chicks. That's right, we're going to the country side of things to get started up here with uh, Wide Open Spaces. Who doesn't know what I'm talking about? Who's never left home? Who's never struck out? To find a dream and a life of their own. A place in the clouds, a foundation. A young girl's dreams no longer hollow 
the Dixie Chicks, as they were at this point. Now the Chicks. I guess we had Man, I Feel Like a Woman in the last episode by Shania Twain. How is this a little different from that? Yeah, I mean, I think like you could even jump back, I guess, a little bit to when we talked about Toby Keith. We've told sort of, you know, the story of sort of country music evolving. As opposed to like what we talked about, that Mutt Lang production of Shania, this is scaled back in a lot of ways and is trying to sort of capture a little bit more of that sort of Nashville sound that we talked about, you know, a long time ago in some of our episodes. A little more, you know, I'll say pure country sounds. Ooh. A now we're defining country yeah. again. How about that? Fiddler and mandolin player Marty Irwin and her sister banjo and dobro player Emily Irwin joined fellow Dallas area players Laura Lynch and Robin Lynn Macy in 89 to form the Dixie Chicks. Their name taken after Hall of Songs nominee Dixie Chicken by Little Feet. They recorded their debut album in 90, a second coming in 92, all the while slowly building a following in the bluegrass and country communities. But as they transitioned to a more country sound, inspired by the red-hot Garth Brooks and other contemporaries, Macy left the band. 1993's Shouldn't Have Told You That stalled the band, and soon after that, Lynch left, replaced by Natalie Maines, the daughter of noted Texas steel guitarist Lloyd Maines. Their sound shifted even more to pop country, and in 97, Sony Music committed to them with a long-term deal. The single I Can Love You Better hit the country top 10, and their official major label debut, Wide Open Spaces. The title track and album's third single was written by Susan Gibson, a Texas musician herself who wrote it about leaving home for college. Her band, The Groobies, recorded it first with Lloyd Maines producing the record. He took it to the Chicks for them to record as well. A little different from the Mutt Lang sort of style where he was trying to say it was country, but it was really a pop rock song. Whereas this is really a country song, but there are pop rock elements into it. And so... It's that sort of other side of the coin here. Yeah, I mean, the word that I always think of with this song is expansive. I mean, obviously, there's the the name is Wide Open Spaces. That's what the lyrics are. But I'm thinking about that more in the way that it sounds. It's like there is this sort of, uh, there's an openness to it. I mean, I think everything sort of works together. There's the fiddles. There's, you know, the banjo. There's some, the sort of the twangy guitar and then the vocals that it does. It the It's one where the sounds really do fit the lyrics very well. And it just kind of feels like it's, it's a kind of open-ended, I guess. Yeah, and it's just it's a song about moving away from home. So funny enough, it's 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 in a way a little connected to what I talked about in my piece there in the open. But there's a lot of empowerment here. The chicks obviously are gonna really dive deeper into women's empowerment later on in their career. But it's subtle here, right? She knows the highest stakes. She said it didn't seem like I that long ago. When she stood there. Also, I kind of love the way that Natalie pronounces mistakes in this song. She doesn't say mistakes. She says mistakes. So, you know. I like that. Yeah. No, I feel like uh, this is a good time to mention the Telecommunications Act in 1996. We haven't really talked about that. That uh, over the real, real short term, it was a law that allowed like media conglomerates to own as many radio stations as possible. Broke down a bunch of, uh, the, you know, broke down a bunch of walls uh, on that end. Uh, you know, if you want the full story, just go listen to Tom Petty's song, The Last DJ. But it affected everything, everything in commercial radio. But I think country, it kind of had this outsized effect. The Clear Channel, uh, uh, Sinclair, all these media companies would sort of like start playing songs that were by companies that they owned and would, you know, probably more importantly, not play things that they didn't like. And 
we're early here, but it's starting to get to this, like, there's a lot of politics that are coming into country music here. And this is maybe right before that sort of breaks, but we're entering that era a little bit. And ultimately the chicks would uh, pay that price in a lot of ways. Like they'd suffer the consequences because they rubbed people the wrong way politically. And uh, as someone who is really into country music at this time, was listening to these things on the stations. It's sad for me sometimes to listen to country music now and then think about listening back then because it's like I, it's almost unlistenable now. There's a lot of really good country music that's out there, but it's not the stuff that's being on the radio. And I think we're like, as we're sitting here about in 1998, we're at that last sort of vestige where I like the songs that were on the radio and uh, in 1998 on the country stations, but uh, uh, due to uh, federal law, that was about to change. Yeah. I enjoy this a lot as, as someone who doesn't really listen to country music, but there's a very breezy nature to this song between the very prominent fiddle, the banjo, and the acoustic guitar just kind of feels like a front porch song, but it obviously has a much more lush production than that. This definitely feels like, as you said, sort of a quote-unquote traditional country sound. Like you could hear one of the outlaw country guys doing this kind of a song. You can hear even Garth doing a song. So the, the tissues there where you could sort of take from Garth in 90 and 91, but you can also take from the outlaw guys in the mid seventies and you can come up with something like this that feels sort of, Oh, this is what natural country should sound like. I think people would try to tell you that this isn't what country is, but it's, it's, it's wild, but, but this is kind of it for me. Yes, that's right. Making her fifth appearance on hall of songs with our second nominee from 1998. This is Madonna. With the title track from her album of this year, Ray of Light. For the fifth nominee for Madonna, we had an inductee in Vogue from 1990. The nominees that didn't make it are Into the Groove, Express Yourself, and Live to Tell. How does this stack up against those four songs, Chris? I, this is a really incredible, I, I, would, I was almost going to say late career, but I guess Madonna is still going strong in many ways, so it's not necessarily late career. But it, uh, coming as, you know, what, 15 years after she burst onto the scene and still sort of reinventing things, it's really amazing. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know where to rank it necessarily. I always have a soft spot for her earlier stuff because that's what I grew up listening to, but this is really a great song. Yeah, she was a dance pop queen early in her career, and here she is now sort of reinventing what dance pop is, at least at the top of the charts. People have been doing this before her, but she kind of pulls it out of somewhere like she did with Vogue. But let's get to that. Vogue, 1990, that was in the I'm Breathless album posed as a soundtrack for the movie dick tracy madonna in the 90s after that here we go like ace ventura we're gonna do this there was a blind ambition world tour and her massive greatest hits album the immaculate collection the documentary truth or dare her co-starring turn in the ace baseball flick a league of their own launching her own record company maverick records the erotica album the coffee table book sex which had a lot of naked madonna in it and also vanilla ice 
There was the Girly Show tour, giving David Letterman her underpants, dating Dennis Rodman and Tupac, the Bedtime Stories album with the big hits Take a Bow and Secret, the disappointing Something to Remember album, her starring role in Evita, having her daughter Lourdes, Kabbalah, and then... Madonna went back to Babyface and Patrick Leonard for her next album, but found the same results that had begun to stall her music career in the mid-90s. So she shifted completely to writer Rick Knowles and English producer William Orbit. We may revisit Knowles later in the episode. Spoiler alert. The result was a set of songs enhanced by layers of samples, synths, and a sound that combined Middle Eastern references with big beat, techno, and electronic-inspired dance. The album, of course, was Ray of Light, and the title track was the second single. This was a big hit, number five in the U.S., number two in the U.K., number one on the dance club charts. And this, to me, is very influential for what we hear today in dance pop. We're talking like Grimes, Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, even some Britney Spears stuff. Now, like with Vogue, Madonna wasn't the one who invented this thing, right? I can trace this back to Bjork and say that she was doing this kind of dance pop before Madonna, which she was. But what Madonna does is she takes the kind of things that were happening just before that, combines it with her style, with her very unique sound, and turns it into massive pop hits, right? And so that's what Ray of Light is. It is sort of the ultimate in what she is trying to combine over the last couple of years of dance and some of the other dispersed sounds that are happening around her. It's funny when I think about this song, it, it like what always comes back to me is this that really soft beginning to it where I knew what I was going to listen to. It would start out and I'd be like, wait, what song is this? And it, then it's like, oh, yes, because it, it like it, uh, uh, it, there's something about it that it's like slightly, I don't know, there, it's like it doesn't quite fit in the memory of the song, but I think it works perfectly. And then every time the beat sort of, you know, drops and it kicks in, it's in your mind, you can picture like a flash of light or, you know, a disco ball and all of that. And I just think it's this sort of perfect setup uh, for what's about ready to come, which, as you said, is like the future of dance pop. I mean, it's building on some of the things that we've talked about before, but this really does take a big step forward. It is the type of stuff that, as you said, like it's still influencing a lot of stuff that we're hearing today. Yeah, the sense really zoom. They just keep pounding and zooming at you. And it's a really basic stupid chord structure it's like doom 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 the whole song is like that it's it's ridiculous yeah i'll admit the lyrics of this one don't quite work for me like she's going for this little more spirituality but i don't feel yeah. like commits quite all the way and some of it i just don't think pays off but it doesn't matter because like that i think the depth that she's going from the lyrics is there in spades in the sound uh, i mean you mentioned sort of like those middle eastern influences but there's just so much going on that it doesn't really matter what she's singing in this context because uh, there's like waves of sound that uh, I just love. I mean, again, I, I think this is a great one. Yeah, and I think it's one of her best vocal performances, if not her finest vocal performance, at least from what I've heard from her career. Sings way up in the register, hard to sing it, but she's still able to emote downscale. And then that scream at the end where she just kind of goes balls out. That's really human. It's a really cool, raw feeling that you get when you listen to that. I don't know. Would you think of a better Madonna vocal than this? Yeah, I don't think I can think of a better one. I mean, you know, there's many that are up way up there at the top, but this is as good as any of those. Boy, I've been 
from Madonna's fifth nomination to Aaliyah's second nomination. Are you that somebody from 1998? Timbaland, man, he's like, we're, we're now like evolving with him, right? We, we had him early on, one of the million, then Missy Elliott. Now here we are with this one, which just feels like a, like a, like a blank canvas that he's creating something that should be in a modern art museum. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I said a couple episodes, I was like, I didn't really know Timbaland necessarily. And then it's realizing listening is, oh, yes, I do. It's like really, really talented and manages to make these uh, do so many different things well. It's like there is a theme to it. You know, there is a style, but he uses that style in many different ways. Well, let's catch up on Aaliyah. We last left her in 96 with One in a Million. The album of the same name peaked at number 18 on the Billboard 200. On the heels of that, Aaliyah graduated from the Detroit High School for the Fine and Performing Arts, then got into acting. Her first major role was a spot in the Fox Police procedural New York Undercover. Remember that one, Chris? I do. She also got into modeling, iconically showing off Tommy Hilfiger jeans in a memorable campaign. She covered Journey to the Past for the film Anastasia, which earned an Oscar nomination for Best Original Song. Did any kids see Anastasia in 1997? I don't think so. Then her friend and producer Timbaland presented her with a new song. Are You That Somebody was slated to be on the soundtrack for the Eddie Murphy vehicle, Dr. Doolittle. And Aaliyah didn't like it at first, but she trusted Timbo, went for it anyway, and it would be the lead single from the soundtrack. I don't know why you wouldn't trust Timbo at this point. I mean, he's doing everything really, really well. He's got beatbox-style syncopation, the 808 beat, and then that baby, that freaking baby. It's like the coolest thing. Yeah, this is another one that it's like, you know, I didn't really know this one coming into the episode. I mean, I knew the song existed. I know it was, what, number three or four on that recent Pitchfork list of the best songs of the 90s. So it was way up there. To me, it feels almost like it's... uh, two songs at the same time like the mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. rob sheffield wrote a th- you know thing about the best songs in 1998 and he describes like the timberland production here as avant-garde and i think that's pretty it's a good way of of putting it there's like a lot of like this ear- experimentation going on i mean you mentioned like the baby and there's all this sort of like in addition to that there's this whole sort of pastiche of sounds but on top of that is this like almost like this soulful r&b track that is much more yeah. traditional in a lot of ways and uh, it's one where it's like you're, they're walking a tightrope. It's like if it doesn't work, it could be bad, but it does, and it works really well here. Well, you're right that there are like two songs happening at the same time, and I was just thinking like there's a lot going on in this song, but Aaliyah is singing this very, as you said, sort of straightforward R&B song, but the production behind her, there, there's no like traditional R&B or rock instrumentation here. There's no traditional guitar or bass or drums or piano. Yes, there's keyboards, but they don't sound like keyboards. Yes, there's drums, but they don't really sound like your typical rock and roll drums, right? And then on top of that, you have a sense of space. You have all that syncopation. The baby, as I said, that's from Jock Holzman's Happy Baby, which was from some like 1960s CD and 1960s sort of record of sounds, right? And 
if you remember that baby, it's actually the same baby that coos at the end of Prince's Delirious from 1982's 1999 album. So go back and listen to that. You'll be like, oh, yeah, it's the same baby. There you go. So funny how that one comes back over and over again. Are you responsible? But Aaliyah just still makes this thing work, right? Her vocals are great. It just floats over the mix like it did with One in a Million. She's trying to tell this guy, look, you know, if if you're going to be part of my life and we're going to have this thing together, then you got to be down with it. You can't tell people about it. You got to kind of creep around. So maybe there's something going on that we don't want to talk about here. But it, she makes it, she's convincing, right? It's such a great convincing vocal. Yeah, no, I mean, the, this track doesn't work without her there, but it also does fit into something that we've been sort of bouncing back and forth over the last few episodes. I mean, we talked about, I think, in great depth when we were talking about Mo Money, Mo Problems and the way that sampling is sort of changing. And sometimes it's being like it's right in the forefront. Sometimes it's being used less. And, you know, one of the you know, really smart things that Timbaland was doing is getting around some of the sampling rules and copyright issues and things like that by you know, really avoiding the pure samples and by sort of creating some things. And that's sort of what what he's doing here. I mean, he's working in some more obscure sounds. He's working in things that are not going to be, you know, copyrighted and traditional songs. And I think, uh, you know, he, he's sort of building that from scratch. And then you're, you're, he's not relying on that hook that's from, you know, a 70s song that you recognize or an 80s song that you recognize. He's relying on her to provide the hook. Well, that's transition from that to our fourth nominee very nicely because, This is also a song that doesn't necessarily rely on traditional sampling, but more creates a sound all of its own. And it introduces a sound that is really going to, with Timbaland's sound, take over R&B, rap, and pop music in the 2000s. This is Noriega with Super Thug. Hey yo, we light a candle, run laps around the English Channel. Neptunes, I got a cocker spaniel. We on the run now, you know it ain't no fun now. And where I go, yo, ain't the internet, even come now. You ain't the law, you can break it. I don't care, but when you get caught, remember that. I don't care, N-R-E, love throughout the atmosphere. That mean now we on the run, yo, if that ain't clear. Weak niggas, I'm losing snakes, yo, but that ain't fair. Yo, we down in Vegas, but these guys too courageous. I know I'm on the run. All right, so this is another one. I just didn't know this song at all. I will admit that. Uh, <laughs> I, I I may have heard it once or sometime before, but I did not know this song. So what's the elevator pitch? Why is this one a Hall of Songs nominee? Well, as I said up top, this does introduce to you a sound that is going to be very prevalent in rap, R&B, and pop in the 2000s, and a producer especially that also becomes prevalent and still is to this day. This is a very impactful record. It was hugely popular, especially in the rap world. It's more than just a, a fun little song about Manuel Noriega, who's living in the Philippines, which is weird. <laughs> That's the pitch. Let's talk about Manuel Noriega, who's not Manuel Noriega. No, not at all. He is Victory James Santiago Jr. That is Noriega. He was born in 1977 in Queens, grew up in the 4,605-unit apartment complex, Lafrac City in Elmhurst, Queens. Some rappers came out of there, Prodigy, Cool G Rap, got into trouble early in his life, sold crack cocaine. He was actually convicted for attempted murder. While in prison at Greenhaven Prison in New York, he met friend Kim Holly. The two started rapping together. 
Fashioning themselves as mafioso rappers, Hollywood go by Capone, and Santiago took the name Noriega after Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega. Capone and Noriega, or CNN, were respected on the streets, got into the hip-hop magazine The Source in 95 as part of its unsigned hype column. Unsigned hype is a big deal. It highlighted the best unknown and up-and-coming talents in rap at the time. So once you got into that, you were bound to get a record deal, which is what happened in 96. Penalty recordings signed CNN, and while working on their debut, Capone was actually sentenced to prison for violating his parole. Several New York rappers helped Noriega finish the album, which was called The War Report. That won plenty of praise, setting up Noriega for his solo turn, and that would come in 98 with the album N-O-R-E, or N-Words, On the Run, Eaten. A cadre of producers worked with Noriega on it, including the Neptunes. They are friends and Virginia Beach natives Chad Hugo and Pharrell Williams. They were the protégés of Teddy Riley and wrote the Rex and Effects Jam Rump Shaker in 92, which I just learned recently. For Noriega, they produced this song, Super Thug, which was a number one rap hit. It was number 36 in the U.S. So we're now at a point, Chris, where Puff Daddy's doing all this pop rap that is getting on the charts and to the top of the charts. This is a hardcore pop rap track. This is about a drug dealer. It's about there's a lot of N-words in this song. It's it's very aggressive and it's a top 40 hit. We're now at a point where these songs are now able to get into the top 40. Nas wasn't getting top 40 hits 5 years before this. This is really the evolution of a genre and now we're hearing behind that a sound that is going to like I said take over the entire rap world in a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, the beat of this song is really, you know, is what stands out. If there were no words to this at all, you would still remember that sort of driving beat. And I I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it feels to me like we haven't really covered anything in the past that's purely like that, that has that kind of beat. But Mm -hmm. it feels like in the 20, you know, in the 2000s and, you know, up through 2010, maybe that it's, there's going to be a lot of that. Like that sort of is this, I think that's at least that in my mind is a lot of what you're talking about as far as this sort of new sound that it's got this, like that absolutely propulsive beat that it's like, it just like, I mean, it's like you listen to it on, you know, I listen to my computer, the desk shakes, you know, it has that sort of like propulsive <laughs> bass and it's, uh, uh, and it is like sort of the sound of what's coming and it makes it jump off. I like this one more than, uh, more than what I may might've expected getting into it. I mean, I, you know, I, I asked for the pitch up top, but this wasn't one where I was sort of, uh, uh, where I listened to it and I was like, eh. this, I, I really, I, like, it's not necessarily my style, but I do really think this is a great track. And uh, uh, it, it, again, I enjoyed getting to know this one. Yeah. For those of you who don't really know this record, you should play it and you might get hooked into it as well. I mean, like you said, that beat, it doesn't let you go for four minutes. It just slams you on the face repeatedly. And as you said, there aren't many producers, DJs really playing with the beat this much and doing it this hard. You know, we had hard beats in the 80s, but not to this level. And Timbaland's changing beat around here at the same time. But Pharrell and and Chad Hugo are really taking it to this heavy extreme, kind of doing the New York thing, but adding, you know, a little bit more heft to it. And along with that, I think what makes this so influential is this is really the first big record that Pharrell Williams produces. Uh, He had a couple of production and a couple of writing uh, works before this, but this is the first real big one that really shows what he's capable of, where you have that very keyboard heavy Blade Runner kind of sound. It's a little futuristic and it's all about that hook, that keyboard hook. And that's really going to be the key for Pharrell going forward. And it's going to really be what 
a lot of his greatest songs are led by is that great hooky keyboard line. You let me do it again. I love the bridge in this one because it completely contrasts with the really hard rap that Noriega's given you. Uh, that beat, it's it's just a little bit smoothed out, and it's Pharrell singing, and what he's doing is Heart of Glass by Blondie. He's doing the Heart of Glass melody, and he's singing, This is a anthem of a superstar, flying a chances in a million cars. It's great. I mean, like that kind of thing is what is going to propel this kind of rap into the future to be able to do a hard beat to make it really grimy, but then to juxtapose that with this kind of sweetness and this melodicism that is going to make rap music really great as it evolves into the 2000s. Talking out your neck, saying you're a Christian. I must live sleeping with the gin. Now that was the sin that did Jezebel in. Who you gonna tell when the repercussions spin? Showing off your ass because you're thinking it's a trend, girlfriend. Let me break it down for you again. You know I only say it because I'm truly genuine. Don't be a hard rock when you really are a gin, baby girl. Respect is just the minimum. And you still defending them now. Lauren is only human. Don't think I haven't been through the same predicament. Let it sit inside your head like a million women in Philly pen. It's silly when girls sell their souls because of sin. Look at where you be in. Hair weaves like Europeans. Nominee number five for 1998. Ms. Lauren Hill's first solo nomination from her 1998 album The Miseducation of Lauren Hill this is Doo-Wop That Thing When listening to the playlists of uh, of these episodes, you know, sort of have them on my like walking to and from work and do things like that. There's always one, sometimes two songs that are just like get caught in my head for like, you know, the week leading up. And this was absolutely the one from 1998. It's just like <laughs> just constantly in the back of my head. All right. Catching up on Ms. Lauren Hill, the Fuji's 96 album, The Score, that had Hall of Songs and Ducky Killing Me Softly, peaked at number one on the Billboard 200. Almost immediately considered one of the best albums of its time, but tensions between members of the group, specifically Hill and Wyclef Jean, who were together while he was getting married to someone else, led to a split. Ms. Lauren Hill was born in 1975 in East Orange, New Jersey. She had a relatively uneventful middle-class life, listening to tons of records, getting good grades, but she could sing, appearing on its showtime at the Apollo in 1988 and starting her high school's gospel choir, she also starred in uh, Sister Act 2. Really good turn in that movie. She met Praz while in high school, and a few years later, they and Wyclef would form Fugees. But now on her own, Miss Hill was ready to make her own statement. She gave birth to her son, Zion, started a nonprofit aimed at helping urban youth, wrote and produced the surprise late period Aretha Franklin hit A Rose is Still a Rose, and started working on her debut album. The Miseducation of Lauren Hill, writing and producing just about everything with only a little help. Lead single doo-wop, That Thing, is a warning advice song, a cautionary tale song inspired by 60s and 70s soul and 50s doo-wop. This was a number one song in the country. It was number one on the hot rap charts. It was number three in the UK. So everybody was aligned with how good this was. And man, I remember 
hearing this for the first time and thinking, what is this? This is not anything that I've heard at all on TV or on the radio. This sounds so out of place with the rest of 1998, but in the, in the freshest way possible. The word that pops into my head when I hear this one is bright. There's kind of this bounce to it. There's like, uh, like it's, it's refreshing in a way, just the way that the, that it sounds. Uh, I feel like there's this kind of like, almost like the, this Motown quality to it. Like uh, mm, yeah, the one yeah. that sort of pops into my head is like, you can't hurry love and things like that, that kind of have this sort of like bounciness to it that I just love. And I, the pianos in this, there's like this little, that little twinkling piano part is great. And it just like, it adds to that and really just sort of like compounds that just sort of feeling that, uh, uh, I mean, like you said, it's this like cautionary tale song, but it's, it's not scolding or dark or anything like that. It has, it's much more sort of, it, it, there's a fun, a fun factor to it. Yeah. But we haven't really had cautionary tale songs on this podcast in a very long time. And I think back like the sixties and seventies, really the sixties were sort of the peak of the cautionary tale song. So it's kind of interesting how she has this song that she's written about, you know, the guys who are going to cheat on the women and kind of not be there for your kids and, a song about women who are going to just sort of play around and not want to settle down with guys. And she's, she, she has it written down. She's like, well, this sounds like a song from the sixties. So why don't I do a sixties production for it? Why don't I make it a sixties song, which is just brilliant. But you have a lot of different elements here, right? Like you said, you have that Motown bounce, but you also have that sort of Phil Spector girl group kind of feel to it, at least with the vocals and the harmonies. A little bit of that doo-wop in the 50s, especially that breakdown, the watch out, watch out, look out, look out part. Also, the Stax horns, there's a lot of horns in this, and it really has that big sort of late 60s, early 70s vibe to it. So she's really crossing all of these different parts of the black music experience from the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, and turning it into this one full throttle jam with the 90s production. Think about how TLC in 94 had a couple songs like Waterfalls and Creep, which were trying to do a little bit of the soul here, had the brass, but they were also kind of going back to New Jack Swing as the sort of the, the genesis of what they were trying to do. They were using that as sort of the template. Whereas here, Lauren's kind of building from the ground up and just like taking all these things, putting them together. And it makes for a really indelible pop song. Yeah. And I mean, you said up top that she can sing, she can also rap. And uh, we haven't talked too much recently about the videos, mm-hmm. uh, like the, the specific videos. This video is great. I went back and rewatched it. it. It had been a while, but it's like, they, you know, they, they have two of her, they have the one that's sort of doing the crooning, the one that's doing the rapping. And it, I think it's just a perfect, you know, cherry on top of the song, if you will, is that it like, it does sort of underscore how talented she is that she's doing both of those things. And uh, anything else, you know, any other song like this would take two people to do, but she can do it by herself. So yes, listeners, Miss Lauren Hill is very talented. In fact, she's so talented. We have a second song from the Miseducation of Lauren Hill in our nominee list. And it's coming up right now. Our sixth song from 1998 is X Factor. And I think this is, one of the greatest breakup songs of all time, and I don't know if it's been done better since this song. But you rather make it hard. Love you is like a battle. And we both end up 
Yeah, so you want to get into it. So The Ringer has actually a, a list of the best breakup songs of all time. They have this as number 18. It's actually a really fun list. I saw this pop up, so I went to go look at it. I was expecting the worst. It's a good list in that it bounces back between, like, there's a lot of different genres. And there's some that are, you know, screw you, I'm out of here breakup songs. Some that are a little more, you know... L- you know, lamenting and things like that. So it's it's a fun list. Go check it out. Can but I real... can I guess? Can I guess? Yes. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. Go go for it. Just get get give a couple guesses for the top. But there's, I'm just gonna talk quickly about the top five. Beyonce's irreplaceable. Not in the top five. Ooh. Uh, Erica Badu's Tyrone. Not in the top five. Ooh. Well, I'm out of ideas. Go ahead. Those are both on the list. Not in the top five. Uh, so of the top five, number five is one I'm. I'm not going to actually mention it because it's it's a year that's coming up, and I think it may make our list or it might not. It's actually by an artist that we're going to talk about later in this episode. Uh, but the top four are all Hall of Songs nominees, and in fact, two are inductees. So the number four song on the list is I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston, Hall of Songs mm, inductee. Okay. Number three, I Can't Make You Love Me by Bonnie Raitt. Yeah, all of songs of nominee, that's not inductee. Great that's a great one. Yep. Number two, another inductee. You ought to know by Alanis Morissette. And then yeah. their number one, I don't know if I agree with this, but it's a great song. It's Purple Rain. Uh, nominee, not an inductee. I don't know if that's like, it's a great song. It's as good as any of the songs. Certainly I wouldn't necessarily put it in that same category as a breakup song, but anyway, yeah, there you go. It's an interesting song? list. Well, kind of, I mean, we talked about it. It's got sort of a lot of different meanings. There's it's kind of a, it's more of a lust song. Yeah. than a breakup song. I'm with you. But, That's what I, said. I like the list that it does sort of do some different things, but interesting like that. They're uh, of the top five, all of them that have been eligible so far uh, have been nominated and two of them have gotten in. So good list. Go check it out. So this is the second single from The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. It dives into an old relationship, likely Hill's with Wyclef. It works in Wu-Tang Clan's Can It Be All So Simple, which has samples of the way we were as performed by Gladys Knight and the Pips. And what I love about this is it only recalls the Gladys Knight and the Pips record and the Wu-Tang record. It doesn't really have a lot of it sort of out in the forefront. It just kind of sets the mood. But Lauren adds so much. You have the full band on top of it. Uh, Tejimal Newton on piano, especially. Also, you have this great guitar solo at the very close of the song by Tejimal's twin brother, Jahari Newton. But also you have just some little production effects. And I have to mention there's bird tweets in this. A lot of bird tweets. And I got to imagine she listened to some Timbaland and was like, hey, I got to do some of that for this record. Yeah, we got some babies crying. We got some birds chirping. This episode's got all kinds of sound effects. Uh, I mean, it's got like even building on... uh doo-wop it's like i i want to be very careful i don't want this to be patronizing because it's like to me sometimes it's like you listen to songs and you're like oh that song is definitely from that album because it sounds similar but this is her just doing something that's completely different even than the two things she was doing on doo-wop i mean this is more sort of a of a soulfulness delivery to me than the crooning that she was doing kind of in doo-wop on the singing part the versatility is amazing we're doing two songs here She's doing three different things in two songs. And I mean, the album's just an incredible tour de force. I mean, like what you said, it burst on, like this one came out. It was like immediately everybody knew this album was an instant classic. It holds up. It still is a classic. Uh, And I mean, she just is like an unbelievable talent. Yeah. And also her vocals here, right? Staggering vulnerability she's showing on the vocal. But as the song continues, 
she gets more and more assured and more defiant. It's a really impressive vocal because by the end of this, you do feel, oh, she is ready to move on from this guy. Like maybe in the beginning of the track, she wasn't quite sure. She was still kind of wrestling with those feelings. But now she is absolutely ready to sort of move forward and move on with her life. And that's really impressive. Also, this has become such an influential song. It's been sampled and covered a number of times. Drake, Beyonce, John Legend have taken chances on it, whether it's a sample or a cover. Proof that I don't, I, I really don't think you could improve on this kind of song. This ex-boyfriend, girlfriend, breakup kind of track. This is this is as good as it gets. So goes our first six nominees from 1998. We will be back in a second with our last six nominees from 1998. But before we get there, we are everywhere. Wherever you can find us, we are on Spotify. We're on Amazon. We're on iHeartRadio. We're on Pandora. We are everywhere you can find podcasts and especially on the podcast app, Apple Podcasts. If you go there using your iPhone your computer, whatever you have, give us a five-star rating because what other, what else are you going to do? Four? Get out of here. Stop. Give us a review. Tell us what you think of the podcast. Tell us how much you like us. Tell us how much you've grown to love us and you want to have us out for beers one night because you do. Do that in a review. Tell us all your thoughts on God. Where, where where can people find us on the social medias and on the email, Chris? All right. Well, first of all, you can check out our website, hallofsongs.com. That's where you're going to go when you're done listening to this episode and you want to go vote. Uh, you can email us, hallofsongspod at gmail.com. That's P-O-D after the Hall of Songs. Find us on Twitter at Hall of Songs. We have a Facebook page at Hall of Songs. And we're on at Hall of Songs on Instagram. And even though we're not active there, I suppose you can hit us a ma- hit us up with a, a, an instant message or something. But any of those places, message us. Send us an email there again, hallofsongspod at gmail.com or Twitter, anything. We have a Veterans Committee episode that we will be recording uh, sometime soon. So, But by the time you hear this, you will still have time shoot us an email or a message or something. Let us know what you think we missed from 1995 to 1998. We will consider it. And uh, even if we don't necessarily actually throw it on the ballot, we might give you a shout out, let you, uh, you know, pick a song that we're going to at least talk about for a couple of minutes. So do that. This would be a great time to do it. Let us know what we missed 1995 to 1998, because that will be the next sort of full episode other than the results here. And we do have a couple of listeners who email me and I know I take more time than I should to respond to people, but I do. And so if you email with anything, I will respond to you for sure, whether it's a song recommendation for the VC or it is predictions. You can predict what we're going to do in 1999. Let's say you can just send me an email and say, these are the 12 I think you're going to pick. And I'll come back later and say, you're wrong or you're right. Or here's how much you're right or whatever. 
uh, do that. Email us and do that. Also, fun little thing for those of you who love our podcast and listen a lot. We're hoping to do in the next couple of weeks an episode that takes you behind the curtain as we are going to do a live short list or medium list or whatever it's going to be. We're going to, we're going to go through a year and it's going to be coming up and we're going to pick the songs that will be potential nominees. So it'll be a really fun episode where you get to see our process a little bit more, uh, li- hear our process a little bit more because you can't say us. We're not on video right now. There you go. Moving on. Oh, Chris. Do the honors. <laughs> All right, Tim. Episode 48, the least of the main episodes. It's about time we get to Britney Spears. Baby, one more time. Talk about three of the most famous notes in the history of music right at the top. <laughs> Another song with some punctuation in it, too. I like punctuation. Snoop Dogg, Shania Twain, Britney Spears, keeping it interesting. That ellipsis at the beginning is really interesting. Like, what does that mean, right? <laughs> like, how, like, what comes before that is the question. Yeah, yeah. See, that's that sort of like asks a, a question in a way what comes before that as opposed to shania twain with her double exclamation points like driving it home man i feel like a woman <laughs> all right well britney spears i'm sure a lot of you know who she is but let's just do the story anyway she was born in 1981 in macomb mississippi moved to kentwood louisiana shortly after took dance lessons sang in church took gymnastics lessons her mom took her to an audition for the mickey mouse club which led to an enrollment at the professional performing arts school in new york Brittany, her mom, and her sister, Jimmy Lynn, moved to New York specifically for Brittany's education. Soon she made it to TV and in 1992 joined the cast of the Mickey Mouse Club, which at the time included a star-studded cast, Christina Aguilera, Carrie Russell, Ryan Gosling, and Justin Timberlake. But the show was canceled. The Spears women went back to Mississippi where Brittany attended high school. Brittany's mom started talking to an entertainment lawyer who asked Brittany to put together a demo tape. She did, and Jive Records took to her. They shaped her voice into something more pop-friendly, then sent her off to Sweden to work with producers like Max Martin and Rami Yacoub. Martin wrote the title track off her debut album, Baby One More Time, and both he and Yacoub produced. This was an all over the world, number one song, mega popular. I remember where I was on the floor of my living room in my old house before moving when I first saw this video. It is seared in my mind forever. What a debut. What a record. 
It is an incredible record. I do not remember watching the video at all. This would have been one that would have been just, it was in the background, but it wasn't one that was necessarily going to be played at parties or played at the bars where I was. But, uh, you know, it's an incredible thing. I mean, you mentioned up top that intro, those notes at the beginning are just incredible, right? It's like, if you just listen to those three notes and then pause it, it's like the rest of the songs then stuck in your head. Like you're going to have to sing Mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is really, really great. And it's got this like, it's it's an incredible intro and it like sets it up perfectly, but it's not like this glorious sort of bubbly pop intro either, right? It's got this kind of like there's kind of an edge even from like the first of those three notes. Yeah, I want to get into the darkness in this record in a second, but I gotta first mention that we've been talking about this guy for a while now. We've been talking about Swedish pop ever since ABBA. This is the apex of what Max Martin was trying to do. This is probably the second peak of the Swedish pop movement. Your first peak being when ABBA probably put out Dancing Queen, let's say. But this is really the peak of Max Martin's powers. He's got an artist coming from America with a twang in her voice that it's been worked out a little bit. And he's got the perfect vocalist who isn't a great singer. Brittany's not a great singer, but she knows how to enunciate and emphasize and her voice the way the tone is it's shaped it really comes off like a like a ringing instrument by itself a lot of these things that she's saying my loneliness is killing me like it just like every note stops 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 and so it just makes for a perfect foil to what max martin is producing And man, like this to me is like when pop music, when we're talking about the Spice Girls just a couple episodes ago with Wannabe, which made the Hall of Songs, talking about how we're finally getting to a point where teen pop music, this very bubblegum kind of sound, this very lightweight, featherweight kind of sound is really hitting the peak of mainstream music. People are listening to this in droves. This was a global number one. This is when... You know, this is bef- like go before New Kids on the Block. This is like when the Jackson Five were at the top of the charts. This is the first time in decades where you have teens taking over the pop charts and doing it with really good records. Yeah, I mean, and it's got that sort of lyrically too, right? I mean, there's like you're talking about like sort of the Jackson Five, but there's sort of this like to me, there's like this Motown era sort of like that girl group longingness to it it's like a teen crush that's completely over the top like i kept sort of having the one song i kept having flashbacks to from our list was please mr postman where it's like it's not about like oh maybe this will be a good relationship it's life or death and it's life or death like encompassed in that thing and it's really i mean it is completely over the top but it is knowingly over the top and it works it's almost leader of the pack, right? Like, right. Like my loneliness is killing me. The reason I breathe is you. I still believe that you will be here. It's like, is the guy a ghost? Is he dead? <laughs> like there's real darkness in this lyric and it's matched perfectly by the production. You have this, the piano, obviously at the top, those three notes are, as you said, so iconic, but also there is a darkness to them. They're very, it's almost like, uh, like, like some sort of, 
German, you know, castle, and there's a count playing in these piano notes or something. But that gloopy bass line, the weird disco-esque wah-wah guitar lines, the eerie keys in the chorus, and that panting, the panting, ha, 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 like a weird arrangement. And I think they're trying to do something funky, but it's really dark. It just, it just comes off as really dark. Everything about this, the undertones are overtones here. What a record, because it is so dark, and yet it is irresistibly poppy. Take the bass line out. Uh-huh. Speaking of iconic names of the 21st century, this is the first Hall of Songs appearance by Jay-Z. It's Hard Knock Life. Really one of the first times that rap shows that it can go well beyond regular old 70s soul samples and big beats. From standing on the corners bopping to driving some of the hottest cars New York has ever seen. For dropping some of the hottest verses rappers ever heard. From the dope spot with the smoke block clinging the murder scene. You know me well from nightmares of a lonely cell. My only hell was since wings again, I know me to fail. Fuck nah, we all again, I'm almost with the rubber grips. Or shots. And if you with me, mama, rub on your tits and whatnot. I'm from the school of the hard knocks. We must not let outsiders violate our blocks. Yeah, I was not, you know, buying a lot of rap CDs at this time in my life. I was mostly buying, you know, sort of old country stuff. I was listening to a lot of country radio. Jay-Z was the exception. He somehow like sort of burst through where I definitely had this on CD and listened to this a lot when it came out. Like he just sort of epitomized cool at the time and... I don't know if he still does, but, uh, you know, now he's just a dad. So (laughs) I guess I find that cool. Well, this came out in September of 98, very late September of 98. And I didn't really get to it until probably early or spring of 99. And I had already moved into my new house by that point. And we actually joined a swim club, like a local swim club at the same time. So in the summer of 99, I was sitting by the pool of my swim club every day, listening to this album and this song, among other songs, and just really absorbing the Jay-Z experience. So this was really big for me, kind of moving into my new life at this time. So Sean Carter. Born December 4th, weighing in at 10 pounds, 8 ounces. He was the last of my four children. Sorry, sorry, sorry. That's a different song. 1969, Brooklyn. Grew up on the Marcy Houses Project and raised by his mother, Gloria. He attended high school with other future rappers, including the Notorious B.I.G. and Busta Rhymes. But for a while, spent far more of his time dealing crack cocaine. After some scares, he leaned more into music, freestyling in the late 80s, first as Jazzy and then Jay-Z. He took that name as a nod to his mentor, rapper Jazzo. During the early 90s, he showed up on a bunch of records, but was still independent, selling his CDs, which he burned himself out of the trunk of his car. Not keen on waiting much longer to break out, Jay, with friends Damon Dash and Kareem Burke, started Rockefeller Records. They got a distribution deal with Priority, and that was just enough to push Jay's debut album into the world. 1996's Reasonable Doubt was a critical smash and put him on the map. Def Jam signed him to a bigger distribution deal, which made his follow-up album, 1997's In My Lifetime Volume 1, produced by Puff Daddy, an even bigger hit. Next came Volume 2, Hard Knock Life, in which he dropped the flashy Puff for a roster of producers in an attempt to expand his sound. Longtime rap producer of the 45 King produced Hard Knock Life, Ghetto Anthem, which is defined by its sample of It's the Hard Knock Life from the 1977 musical Annie, which we may revisit later in the episode, apparently. So it samples Annie, which was a really big deal back then. It's a very pedestrian beat. This is one of the worst beats, I think, in hip-hop history, to be honest with you. Um, But the sample is so crucial because... 
you have Noriega, you have whatever Timberland's doing, you have the big Punishers of the world, DMX. They're all doing their own thing with keyboard heavy heavy sounds, and they're you know their producers are trying to do something different. Whereas Jay is really leaning into the sample, but doing something that isn't your typical sample. He's taking from a Broadway musical, and it's sped up. It's a little feminine. I can only imagine that. Kanye West, who is just kind of growing up at this time and starting to really absorb this stuff, is listening to this and going, oh, I know what I can do later on as a rap producer, a rap writer, a rap artist. And so this is kind of the beginning of this new phase of sampling that's really going to take wind. You're exactly right that there's like it's a big deal for the sample from Annie, but like there's a choice here and it's a big, big choice, right? I mean, it's like he is taking something that is from sort of Broadway history and from this world that is sort of this like traditionally sort of white upper class world, at least as far Mm -hmm. as the theater goers go, then he's taking it from a play that's about sort of, you know, this rich family that adopts that brings in the orphan Annie. And then he's sort of going, you know, back in time. It's like, there is a lot going on just by that choice of the sample. Right. Mm -hmm, It's like, mm -hmm. there's one thing we talked a lot about the rain and her use. It's like, she takes a seventies sort of soul song and reworks that and builds on it. And that is much more sort of the model that we were used to seeing like that Missy Elliott model. This is like, it's much more sort of throwing something that's in your face, completely turning the tables then building on top of that, a track that is largely about life of like this hard knock life. I mean, but it's about like this sort of dealing like, drugs, life right? And living and on the streets, like, and yeah. I mean, like Tribe got somewhat there where there were some really interesting samples. I mean, we talked a little bit about their use of Lou Reed and things like that. But like, this is a bold choice. I remember hearing this for the first time and being like, "Wait a minute! All right, I see what he's doing here." And it was like for this to be like your kind of announcement to the world in a lot of ways. It's bold. And it's uh, and it works. I mean, it's it's really just sort of a big bold move. Yeah, and on top of that, Jay Z's flow and his presentation as a rapper is so laid back and so earnest and so casual, right? So he's not in your face about the things that he's been through in his life. He's doing it in a way that's saying, "Listen to me. Hang out with me for a bit as I tell you what my life was like." But I'm not going to confront you with it. I'm just going to give it to you as if I was talking to a friend you miss these lines that are sort of at times creepy or at times a little bit off kilter, off centered. Like I, I, the one that always run through my head and, and it just like, cause I'm a little boy at heart is if you whip me, mama rub on your tits and whatnot and whatnot, which is great. Like, like who says, and whatnot, nobody anymore besides like an 85 year old man. So Jay Z is doing something that you wouldn't expect. It's very charming, but it's this super like weird line, but that's who he is. He's not, the most gifted rapper ever. He's not like the greatest flow ever. He doesn't have the most amazing wordplay ever, but he's really, really good at a lot of things. And charm is, I think, his biggest asset. He knows how to charm you so that you feel comfortable with him as he guides you through something that actually might be really scary. Yeah, I mean, what it's funny, the, the, the artist that jumps into my head in thinking through that is Bob Dylan. You know, people talk about Bob Dylan's singing voice and things like that, but there's this, there's a nonchalance to it 
that is kind of like maybe i don't have the perfect range maybe i don't have that but it's like that's what makes me cool right it was like mm-hmm, that's what mm-hmm. sort of does it. and i think jay-z does that perfectly here what's like as you said it's not this sort of technical rapping like many people that we've talked about and it's that like it there is almost something to that that it's like i know i'm not the best but i'm still gonna somehow do it better than anybody else that comes across as like this effortlessness that it just works and it adds to that sort of the coolness factor that he has. And I've said this a lot on the show about different things, but it's like, if it didn't work, it would be just cringeworthy bad, but because he can pull it off, he pulls it off. I mean, speaking of coolness, we got another one teed up for you, right, Chris? (laughs) We do indeed. It's about time we talk about outcast. This is Spodiote Dopalicious. Yeah. Outcast. I mean, this is, Oh, I could just lean back as far as I possibly can. And if I did smoke pot, smoke pot and just really enjoy this forever. This I would I would I would dra- drape myself in this beat, in this in this record forever. I'm sitting in Philadelphia in February, yet somehow I'm also sweltering under a humid Atlanta night. Well, Atlanta is where we are right now, specifically the Lenox Square Shopping Mall. In 1992, 16-year-olds Andre Benjamin and Antoine Patton meet for the first time. They attend the same high school, face off in rap battles, and struck up a true friendship. They called their rap duo Outcast and hooked up with Organized Noise, a production team including Patrick Sleepy Brown, Ray Murray, and Rico Wade. Those guys worked on TLC's Waterfalls, a Hall Songs nominee, and Envogue's Don't Let Go. Outcast also brought in some of their friends, Cameron Big Gip Gip, Willie Cujo, Knighton Jr., Thomas Calloway, or CeeLo Green, and Robert Timo Barnett, and they called themselves Goody Mob. Together, they were the Dungeon family. After graduating, Outcast signed with Babyface's LaFace Records, also home to TLC, and they did a remix of their What About Your Friends. Then came the 93 single Players Ball, a 94 debut album, Southern Playlist of Cadillac Music. Organized Noise produced and Goody Mob was all over those tracks. They won the Best New Rap Group Award at the Source Awards, one of rap's big award shows at the time. And when accepting the award, Andre, now Andre 3000, stated that, quote, the South got something to say, unquote. 96 follow-up album AT Aliens went deeper into outer space-influenced sound and generated the hit Elevators, Me and You. Andre started dating Erica Badu, started dressing more flamboyantly, while partner Patton, now big boy, essentially stayed more grounded. For the next album, the duo opted for live musicians, wanting something of a Motown or Stax feel. The result was the album Aquamani. Spodiote Dopalicious, about that fetching young lady that you just can't get your mind off of, was an album track. So no chart history here. This did not chart. It wasn't a single, anything like that. But I just think this is quintessential outcast this is as as outcast as outcast gets and it's the moment that southern rap figures it out what their sound is what their vibe is what the whole picture is this is what it is 
yeah, I'm with you. I think this is kind of the quintessential outcast in a way where, like I said, it's like, like the word that pops into my head is like grimy or sweaty, where it's like you do kind of feel like you're outside in this like hot Atlanta night. But yeah. then there's like that horn line that comes through. And that's like what like like somehow they sort of like burst through with this perfect like few like notes of melody that sort of ease up from that just you know just a, in a little bit and like remind you it's like they sort of reach out and grab you like how talented they are at sort of just like putting together these hooks like you said this is a deeper album track we don't like a lot of the ones that we've done especially in this episode are much more sort of you know singles oriented this one is like a little bit of a deeper track but i think it's it's the one that does really kind of sum up really outcast it as a whole, but especially where they were now. Yeah. Some of the terms I have written down here, molasses, thick whiskey, strong endo dank all with the reggae soul. Cause there's a very reggae sort of sound to this. They're studying the seventies and black exploitation cinema. That's what they get out of it. Like it's the funkiest thing we've heard since parliament. Right. And you have, Sleepy Brown setting the scene with that little vocal, that little, like, very at the top, just kind of singing it out a little bit. Sleepy Brown is always good for kind of singing a couple bars in a track. And then Andre raps over that spare beat in his lascivious, luxurious, relaxed demeanor, talking about the first time he met a spody, a fine bow-legged girl. And then Big Boy comes in with a sharp everyman delivery and turns a meat cute into a picture-perfect vision of a future with a child in a home, and then you fail a drug test. And so back to reality. One moment you frequent the booty clubs, and the next four years you and somebody daughter raising your own young girl. Now that's a beautiful thing. That's if you're on top of your game and man enough to handle real life and situations, that is. Can't gamble feeding baby on that dope money. Might not always be sufficient. But the United Parcel Service and the people at the post office didn't call you back because you had cloudy piss. So now you're back in the trap. Just that. Trap. trap, trap. Go on to marinate on that for a minute. Just incredible storytelling. Like, this whole record, as much as it is this incredible sound that is luscious and deeply ingrained in that 70s soul and funk sort of atmosphere... There's incredible rapping on top of this, where these two guys are talking about everything that comes with meeting a woman and all the thoughts in your head about, okay, where's this going to lead? Where are we going tonight? Where are we going next week? Where are we going in a couple of years? What's it going to look like in 15 years when I'm, oh crap, I have a kid and I, and what have I done with my life? Like all that is laid bare in this record. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I I also love this kind of like ode to the Atlanta nightlife, right? Where it's this, uh, uh, there's a lot of darkness to it. That's got the good, the bad, the violent and everything. Uh, And it's funny, like we're just in sort of looking at other possibilities sort of for like for 1998, but then also just sort of looking back, there's like this, at this time in country music, there was this whole, I mean, it's always been that way, but there's this whole sort of thing about the songs where it's like they're drinking beer down by the river. You know, the one that pops in my head was actually from a couple of years earlier, down on the farm, Tim McGraw. It's like, you know, they pull in the pickup truck, everybody drinks out of the keg and they like start, you know, dancing to country music. And they all feel really fake, right? They feel like they're sort of like you're inventing this memory that it's like what you wanted it to actually have been like Mm -hmm, when in mm -hmm. fact you were like it was probably like eight dudes sitting around like a 30 pack of natty light 
Uh, and like, you know, the stereo ran out of batteries and things like that. This one kind of has that sort of same, like, this is what we were doing, like the nightlife, but there's like this dark side to it. And there's more, there's much more of an edge and probably more truth to it. Like things don't always go as planned. You know, it's like, it's not like it's this like perfect night where all the attractive ladies show up and, uh, you know, start dancing around your pickup truck while you're picking up the perfect tunes. It's like, things don't always go as they are planned. And uh, this captures a lot of that. So damn, 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 James is the big hook that opens the song and it goes throughout in the chorus and stuff. That comes from Good Times, the TV sitcom from the 70s. In a season four episode, starts off the whole season. James Evans is killed in a car accident. Spoiler alert, I guess. And Florida Evans, his wife, the other star of the show, is obviously not mourning his death yet, trying to sort of compute it. It's not computing. And then she's in the kitchen and it just hits her at, at, at the last moment. And she just like, she, she throws down a bowl and she screams, damn, damn, damn. And the James is added for effect by outcast, but you know, that reference. And so when you get that reference and you kind of like, hit that cultural connection to something like very deeply ingrained into black culture in the seventies. I mean, it's perfect. It's a, it's a wonderful reference. And now for our 10th nominee from 1998, it's the new radicals with you get what you get. be right back i'm gonna go kick hansen's ass (laughs) i'm gonna get marilyn manson (laughs) he deserves it the others might not but he does (laughs) all right man this is just a great pop rock it's so oh god it's so good it's so good yeah i mean there's a couple songs every once in a while we get to songs where it's like we can't necessarily come up with uh you know the the influence that it has or that moves the ball forward it was doing something dramatically different it's just so damn good that it can't be denied and uh that's what this is greg alexander was born in 1970 in gross point michigan raised by parents who practiced as jehovah's witnesses started playing music as a preteen became proficient in multiple instruments joined a band as a teen did a demo and signed a contract with a&m records in 86 he released the very studio rock debut album michigan rain in 89 which made no dent at all his 1992 epic records follow-up, Intoxifornication, what a terrible name for an album, <laughs> that included some re-recorded songs from Michigan Rain, and it wasn't much of a hit either. So after spending some time busking around New York City, he went to L.A. in 97 with longtime collaborator Daniel Brisbois, who, by the way, was a child star who was acting in All in the Family and the original Broadway production of Annie. Aha! Came back, huh? formed a project called The New Radicals. They got signed by MCA Records and started working on a debut album. So Greg caught in a ton of favors, brought in a bunch of studio musicians, including Rusty Anderson, who would go on to become Paul McCartney's longtime touring guitarist. 
Yacht Rock Session keyboardist extraordinaire Greg Gaines, and pianist and songwriter Rick Knowles, who we talked about with Madonna's Ray of Light. All comes back together. Full circle on this episode, baby. The album was Maybe You've Been Brainwashed too. You Get What You Give, a song about being a good person, was the lead single. It was number one on the adult alternative uh, chart, number five in the UK singles chart, number 36 in the US singles chart. And again, another one of these songs where I remember when it came out, I saw the video, they're in the mall, they have the scooters, he's got that stupid bucket hat on, but you cannot deny how good this song is. It recalls the 70s pop, we'll talk about that in a second, but it is purely fresh and purely fun and also has a message that kind of has allowed this to transcend this through the years. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a little bit about the uh you know the this sort of weird divide between the Gen Xers and the millennials and things like that. This falls squarely on the millennial side of the divide. I yeah. don't remember this song coming out. It just kind of seems like it was always there. But I think even the skeptical Gen Xers like me love this song because what I think it does is it kind of is like it is this like starry eyed, you know, song that's about karma and it's about sort of like if you do right, then like people will do right by you and all of this. But it knows that it's like earnest. If you listen to this and you're not like slightly moved, then not as much as Chumbawamba if you don't like uh, tub thumping. But it's like if you it's listen close. to this, you're not slightly moved. You don't have a soul. <laughs> Wake up, kids. You got the dreamer's disease. I mean, right from the onset, it's just a it's an anthem to get up and and feel something and go for something. And like I said, with other songs from the 90s that we've talked about in the past couple episodes, there's so much 70s in this record. And this was a big thing at this time, taking the 70s and sort of reworking the sort of tropes from that decade, that rolling Elton John piano. There's a melodic Wings-esque, McCartney-esque bass line. ELO fake bombast with the strings. And there's a whole Springsteen vibe to this. Like, this whole thing sounds like it could be a Springsteen song. It's not really, but it sounds like it could be. And it's so stupidly simple. Like, the chord structure is really simple, but it sounds sunny and it sounds optimistic. of that i think a lot of people feel the same way it does have that impact it has been around in our in our world forever and people still go back to the song and think yeah this is one of the best from the decade i mean Joni mitchell loved it um <laughs> you know ice t ice t according to wikipedia ice t said that this was one song that like cut through all the mess of this decade and was amazing bono said he wished he wrote this song i mean come on what more can you say 
Yeah, I mean, this song does not have a hook. This song has at least three, maybe four hooks. Mm-hmm. And they're all as good as anything in like some of the best pop songs. I mean, we talked about the phenomenon like that every once in a while these artists like they just have that perfect light bulb goes off moment and pour everything into that and that's what this was i mean i've li- this is a good album it is a i would actually say it is a very yeah, good album yeah yeah, yeah but this is. track is you know it's like if the album is like an 8 out of 10 an 8.5 out of 10 this is like a 12 out of 10 i mean it's like it bursts through is one of those things that's just a, like their lasting legacy uh, just great great pop rock whatever you want to call it song All right, Sam, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but this is the first appearance on Hall of Songs by Cher. Believe. Believe. You believe you don't like this song, do you? I'm not a huge fan. No, I'm not. <laughs> I love this song. I'm not. Okay. <laughs> so this came out on my 14th birthday, October 19th, 1998. My 14th birthday. I was I was starting high school, age 14, young high school student. Were you born on a Tuesday? Or I guess no. Your 14th birthday would have been on a Tuesday, right? Because all these songs came out on October 19th. We got a couple. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Back in the old days, the albums used to come out on Tuesdays. That's right. Those were the days. There you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I I don't like this song that much. I think it's a little trite. But but I understand the merit for sure in why this belongs in the top 12. It's perfect, Tim. You're wrong. No, I, I, love, <laughs> no, I really, really like this song. A lot of it's just tied up in great memories because this was like, you know, every place when I was having a really good time in my uh, – my uh, last year in college and all that. I do really like it, but we'll get into it. It's it's not perfect. There are some, but it's it it the first nomination for Britney Spears. We talked about Madonna, Ray of Light, and now we have Cher, and it's like so that's a quarter of the songs that we're going to talk about in this episode. And you kind of have, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, these divas. It's interesting. They're all at very different points in their careers, and it's like they're all they're all so different they're all so great and they're all just kind of like you know like grabbing this power and i like that i think this is a cool thing about the the, the 98 songs well let me take about 20 minutes to give you the history <laughs> of share up until this point sherlyn sarkissian was born in 1946 in el central california claimed armenian and cherokee indian ancestry among others Sherilyn shortened her name to Cher as a teen, acted and had dreams of being a movie star, and while she carried a distinctly low singing voice, at 16 she dropped out, left home, and went to L.A. She danced on the Sunset Strip, met entertainer Sonny Bono, who got her into showbiz and would unofficially marry her in 1964. She did folk pop, covering Bob Dylan's All I Really Want to Do as a top 20 hit. Then she and Sonny became a duo. Their I Got New Babe hit number one in 1965, launching Cher as a pop star and a fashion plate of the 60s. 
Let's speed it up now. Sonny and Cher started running out of steam by the late 60s. They married for real in 69, had a child, Chaz Bono. Their fortunes turned around in the early 70s when they were offered a TV show, a comedic powerhouse that showed Cher's acting chops. Her music career really took off after that with singles like Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves, Half Breed, and Dark Lady. Then she and Sonny divorced. Cher got her own TV show. She married Greg Allman. She and Sonny started another TV show after their divorce. And then the music career started faltering. But then she came back as a force during the disco craze. And when that faded, she leapt back into movies with critically acclaimed roles in Silkwood, Mask, and Moonstruck. Another musical comeback came from all of that, peaking with the album Heart of Stone and mega hit, If I Can Turn Back Time. During the 90s, she developed chronic fatigue syndrome, starred in infomercials, and seemingly reached the deepest valley of her career. But on January 5th, 1998, Sonny Bono, now a congressman, died in a skiing accident. Cher delivered the eulogy at his funeral. After that, her record company nudged her to record a new album and to think more about her gay audience, which was pretty large by this point. So a dance album was set called Believe. The title track was the first single and was number one, like everywhere in the world. This was an enormous number one single. So seven people, including Cher, write it. To produce it, and while Ray of Light, the other big electronic-inspired song of this year, feels singular and visionary, this just feels like a massive effort. It feels like a hefty production, an all-out attempt at capturing the belt off the ladder. This is an incessant beat, a thump, a trip-hop breakdown, surrounding instrumentation sounds kind of like it lives on a different planet. The synths, the guitar lines, the walls of vocals behind Cher, and naturally Cher's own very powerful, very from-the-stomach vocal. This is just a big freaking meal. This is, a, this is a movie. This is a cinematic masterpiece. This is a giant song. As much as I don't really care for it because I think it almost shows itself too much as a big effort, it proves to work. It is a success. It is a massive song. Yeah, you need to start being meaner. Every once in a while, you know, I'm like not, that. I'm not mean. Well, like, is this me being well, that's mean? The point. No, that's the point is you need to start being meaner. It would have been funny if you would have gone on some rant about, I mean, if we were talking about fish, yes, I could be mean. <laughs> this isn't fish. This is still a, like a reasonably good yeah. song. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm largely with you on the production here. I mean, I think that's my, uh, my feeling like the, the bunch of, it does feel sometimes like there's too many cooks in the kitchen. And I feel like, uh, you know, there, there's this great hook, like the, you know, the chorus that do you believe in life after love? I actually love the melody in the verses better underneath this. I feel like there's this sort of Motown esque, you know, melodic verse chorus song that works perfectly. It's good bones. Uh, it does, yeah, it does have really, really good bones underneath. And the, you know, having seven people write it to me doesn't necessarily bother me that much. I feel like that's kind of the the song factory type thing that does like that you need to kind of write these songs that have these great melodies and these great hooks sometimes. And I think then when you put this gloss on it, when you do, like, if you just take it, you know, for what it is, where it is this kind of club mix, even up top, it's a really, really fun song. This was one that was just like the soundtrack to, you know, a couple of years. It was always on at the bar. It was always on at the, you know, at parties and things like that. And 
it's like from moment one you hear it and you're kind of like like i wanted desperately to not like this song because <laughs> it was every place it sort of hits and it's like one of those things where it like comes on you're kind of like all right i don't want to like that and they're all right all right all right i'm into it and you start dancing because it's just great i'm sorry i think if i was a little bit older i'd probably like this song more i think at the age that i was at the time i really wasn't ready for a share song to kind of be in my world so maybe that's part of what it was but as much as this was popular and very popular it's a really influential record too it's because of the vocal and what Cher is doing with her vocal she is using autotune that was introduced as a concept as a tool in 1997 so this is very early it was used by producer mark taylor to overcorrect and take out the portamento or her vocal carry into another note because maybe she was flat here or there or whatever but it's also used stylistically here right so right. it was used in a way it hadn't been used before on a pop record and it turned shares very otherwise human vocal into one with the machine beat, essentially turning her into an emotive part of the music bed. And that's really pioneering, as we know, for many years going forward, especially as we get into the 20, the late 2000s, the 2010s, autotune is going to be everywhere. Like every R&B vocalist is going to use autotune in some way. Every pop vocalist is going to employ it in some way as a way to just flourish their vocal or maybe work on it a little bit better or maybe give it a little bit more tone. But this is the first real pop working of autotune. And what a moment. Like, I mean, I mean, that's really influential. Yeah. I'm largely agnostic on the autotune thing. I do feel like, you know, if I could go back in time here, like it would have been cool to sort of use if the, you could turn if, back time there you go <laughs> uh, that it would be cool to sort of use auto tune maybe just in the chorus like to use it less and to sort of mix it in as well as like because it does feel like it's over auto tuned and uh, i mean certainly if everybody like we know share could belt it out it's like it you know like to the extent that it's like she wasn't somebody who needed the auto tune to make it sound good uh, so like that is to me, like if I was going to go and have a gripe with this, this song, it would be over auto tuning, like let her, let share be share. And then maybe bring in this new technology when you want it to kind of seem cool. And when you want it to seem a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit more cutting edge. But I think that's the extra oomph that makes this stand out even more than anything else from this time. Like there were a lot of dance tracks like this happening around this time, but that auto tune gives it that flavor that you wouldn't have had in other tracks. nominee from 1998 also released on my 14th birthday how about that is fat boy slim coming at you with praise you a really cool melding of what we've been hearing a lot lately with sampling and what we're also hearing a lot lately with big beat and dance 
this is a really interesting record that I think transcends what it was doing at the time. Yeah, I'm with you. I think this is one that uh, I'm really glad I sort of got back into this because it's always been there. It's another one always on at parties, always on at the bars at this era. And uh, uh, but is smarter than I ever gave it credit for. Quentin Cook, later Norman Cook, was born in 1963 in Bromley, Kent, England. He was really into punk music, played drums in a new wave influenced band called Disc Attack. In 85, he joined the British band The House Martins. And they had a nice little career, charting six top 20 UK singles. They disbanded in 1988, and from there, Cook started working with an engineer named Simon Thornton. He went solo and had a minor hit in 89 with Blame It on the Baseline. Then he formed a studio musician collective called Beats International, which landed a UK number one hit in Dub Be Good to Me. He got into trouble with all the unauthorized samples he used, however, and so that ended shortly after. Then he formed a group called Freak Power, which at least made him money. He created a house music group called Pizza Man that had a bunch of UK hits. But his true calling would come in 1996 when he adopted the pseudonym Fatboy Slim. Debut album Better Living Through Chemistry was a light success in the UK with three singles. Then came the single The Rockefeller Skank in summer 1998, whose big beat meets surf rock sound came at the right moment and became a huge hit. Number six in the UK, number two in the US dance charts. That led to the album You've Come a Long Way, Baby, Crazy was the album's third single, went to number two on the alternative airplay chart, number one in the UK total, and number 36 in the US. And I forgot just how many bangers were on this album and how much Fatboy Slim was embedded in the tapestry of 98, 99, and 2000. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good point. And like I said, this was one that was like, they, these things were always kind of on in the background, and I never really thought of fat boy slim as like the serious artist right it was like it was just kind of like it was like dance music that was on in the background random uh, novelty uh, stuff yeah, yeah yeah and uh but it's like you go back and you listen to this and i mean i like i was somewhat being joking when i was talking about that in the case of chumbawamba but it's similar to that where it's like there's a real art to what they're doing here and uh, mm-hmm. you know what he it's like it really does he, he this is a great a great track that it was a lot of fun to have on in the background at the bar when you're like drinking Long Island iced teas that your bartender friend is selling to you for a dollar. But <laughs> it also, it's like you listen to it now and you're like, this is good. Like, I mean, it is really, really a good track. Yeah. So the main sample, the main vocal here is from Camille Yarbrough and her song, Take Your Praise from her 1975 album, The Iron Pot Cooker. Camille is an activist, sometimes singer who put out that one album based on her one woman spoken word show from 1971 with a historically classical jazz and folk label Vanguard. But in 75, everyone was trying to capture that pop funk and soul sound a la Stax, high records, Philadelphia international. So that song, take your praise is about praising those who got through the civil rights movement. It's a song about black empowerment celebration. It's an incredible message. And a white British guy turning that line into a record could absolutely fall apart. It could be like the wrong thing to do totally. But the sentiment remains here. Camille has actually gone on record to say that she really liked what happened with this because it retained the same message that she had early on. There is one part dance, rave up, big beat track from the UK here. And then there's another part very inspirational transcendent song about celebrating people who get through the bad things and 
going through together to make the world a better place and feeling good about humanity. Like you said, millennial, right? This is the moment where the millennial is starting to come into view as the main consumer of music. And so more optimistic and positive messages are happening at this moment. This is right in line with that. The message is phenomenal. And it just so happens that it comes with this sort of evolution of the big beat into something that is much more world encompassing and world popular. Anybody can get down with this. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I feel like this song has been sort of, uh, I don't know, I don't even know if I want to say like misinterpreted, misused, but it's like it's it's come to mean something very much different, right? Like Mm -hmm. it was sort of a a archetypal track that was going to be used for like Nike ads and ESPN promos and things like that. And like the praise you thing came to be about like athletic accomplishments or things like that and it sort of lost the meaning at the same time like what you said like the original one was sort of by like a white british guy who was kind of you know in some ways like taking this message and uh, i i mean it's like it, it there's a lot of stuff going on right it's like i don't think there's it's a almost right answer appropri- almost appropriation almost appropriation and then you have like sort of this like nike espn stuff that's like almost appropriation of appropriation yet I think at the end of the day, it's like there weren't necessarily these kind of like, you know, holier than thou. Like, I'm going to grab this and make it seem like it's like I'm I'm going to sort of hold myself above you when I do it. It was sort of like naivete, right? Like that you're sort of grabbing that and not necessarily getting the message. But anyway, uh, I mean, it's it, it, it does sort of have this you know, this emblematic quality to it that is what lends itself to that stuff, like the Nike ad and the ESPN thing, right? It's like, there are these moments in the song that just sort of burst through that you're kind of like, yes, it like works well with like an ESPN college football thing because it has these like, mo- these the highs are so high, right? That it like has the peaks that that do lend themselves to this kind of like weird accomplishment type thing. Well, I think also what makes this work is Cook is taking this Camille Yarborough song and surrounding it with other samples that are really unique and really obscure and that are only existing to sort of lift up her vocal, right? You have samples like It's a Small World from Mickey Mouse Disco, which is the wah-wah guitar. It's like such a weird sample to take from. And then the Steve Miller band's Lucky Man, which that's the electric piano part. These like songs that you wouldn't necessarily take as samples. You these aren't popular songs. This is a puff daddy. This is taking from really digging in the crates and finding something out of nowhere and using it to sort of enhance what the Camille Yarborough vocal is doing. So I think what he's what he's trying to do is say, This is a beautiful piece of music. I'm going to lift it up with this dance beat, but I'm also going to surround it by other things and turn it into this anthem. And he unbelievably succeeded, succeeded with it. Well, we have to praise you for getting through our latest episode of our top 12 songs from 1998. Let's go through them one more time. They are Wide Open Spaces by Dixie Chicks, Ray of Light by Madonna, Are You That Somebody by Aaliyah, Super Thug by Noriega, 
Doo-Wop, That Thing by Ms. Lauren Hill. X Factor by Miss Lauren Hill. Baby One More Time by Britney Spears. Hard Knock Life Ghetto Anthem by Jay-Z. Spodiodi Dopalicious by Outkast. You Get What You Give by The New Radicals. Believe by Cher. And Praise You by Fat Boy Slim. Those 12 songs will go onto the ballot that exists at hallofsongs.com. You can vote if you're listening and you can get to your computer between February 19th and 26th of 2023. Go to hallofsongs.com. Vote for up to 10 songs that you think belong in the Hall of Songs. Make that decision. Choose wisely. There are songs from other years past in that ballot as well. Should we go through those songs just so people know what else is on the ballot? Why not? Okay, those songs are Freedom 90 by George Michael, One by U2, No Diggity by Blackstreet featuring Dr. Dre and Queen Penn, Virtual Insanity by Jamiroquai, Along December by Counting Crows, The Impression That I Get by the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, Paranoid Android by Radiohead, Everlong by Foo Fighters, The Rain, Super Duper Fly by Missy Elliott. Tub Thumping by Chumbawamba. Together Again by Janet Jackson. And Man, I Feel Like a Woman by Shania Twain. Not Hallelujah by Josh Groban. Not Hallelujah (laughs) by Josh Groban, which is not a Hall of Songs inductee. (laughs) Hallelujah by Jeff Buckley is in the Hall of Songs. (laughs) There you go. All right, so we had other songs from 1998 that we wanted to maybe talk about, didn't get on our list. What do you got, Chris? All right, so first I give the quick cricket update. Jack Leach just picked up another wicket. New Zealand is now 182 for seven. We got I, the wicket! I will give, I'm going to use most of my time to give a shout out to the great Lucinda Williams. Uh, her album, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road, came out in uh, 1998. I, I mean, there are five or six songs that uh, I could have, like, legitimately thought would have been uh, worthy the title track car wheels from a gravel road can't let go is one of her bigger songs um i absolutely love jackson as well there's metal firecracker which is probably my favorite song on the album and uh drunken angel also good great great stuff and then one more wilco did an album with uh billy bragg that uh, came out in 1998 that was uh, Mermaid Avenue, where they took a bunch of lyrics that had been found that were uh, uh, Woody Guthrie tracks. They reworked them uh, and added some music. And one of those is California Stars. That is one that I played at my wedding. It was actually one of our, like I I mentioned this during the All Country episode, it was the last dance that Meg and I had before uh, uh, at the end of our wedding. So California Stars, Wilco, Billy Bragg, Woody Guthrie, Everybody combines into one and uh, uh, just a brilliant, brilliant, beautiful song. I'll give you a couple. We had very close to the final 12 in the airplane over the sea by neutral milk hotel. I am a personal big fan of big puns, big punishers, capital punishment album from 1998. Still not a player is the big hit from that one featuring Joe. There's a couple of tracks on that album that I would have really loved to see get close, but probably would not have gotten that close in the, and the ultimate sort of decision-making back that as up by juvenile, one of the seminal 
tracks from New Orleans rap and that sort of cash money slash no limit world back that is up is just tremendous. Maybe Juvenile's best hit. Rough Riders Anthem by DMX, that album, It's Dark and Hell is Hot, was, like I said, everywhere in my life in 98. So that was definitely up there for me. I'll give you one more. One more. One Week by the Bare Naked Ladies. It didn't come close enough, but just a shout out to the Bare Naked Ladies for writing very catchy, sometimes too earwormy to be good enough for you, pop rock music. Yeah, I love One Week. I love Bare Naked Ladies. Uh, a mild teaser, perhaps. If you like Canadian music, you might want to turn into the next uh, Veterans Committee episode. I will also say, I think that Neutral Milk Hotel album is the ultimate in the Gen X millennial divide. I don't have a single friend who would put that album as like one of their top 100 albums. Yet, Oh, sorry, of my age. Yet I have friends who are like five to ten years younger than me who would put it as like one of their top two or three albums of all time. I don't know what it is. Uh, I said to you, this to you offline. I've actually seen them in concert uh, twice. Once during the original thing and then once when they came back for their sort of reunion. Uh, I've listened to that album I don't know how many times trying to get to like it and it doesn't work for me. It's like there is something about it that it is that is the one that it just misses for some reason for me. And uh, it's like, you know, frequently pops up top albums in the 90s, all that stuff. It just doesn't quite hit home for me. It's like the beginning of what would become the future indie rock movement. Like that that album sort of is the first album of the next 20 years. But and- like I love Arcade Fire. I love some of the stuff that may sort of grunt. It's like there's something about that album that just doesn't quite hit for me. I don't know what yeah, it is. Yeah, and Arcade Fire comes from that. Like, I know, like yeah. That sound, yeah, yeah. So there you go. I don't know. Hey, we all have our preferences. We do indeed. Yeah, we do. Okay. So that's it for 1998. Uh, Chris, who do we thank for the things they do for the podcast? Uh, We have to thank uh, Stock Music Media for our theme song. Uh, We only have one more episode left in the 90s, then we may need a new theme song. We also have to thank uh, Aaron DeLashman for our logo work. I need to get on him for some more guitar pick plaques, although... Uh, if you listen to our results episode, you know, he's been very busy. He just got promoted to a full captain at his airline. So, uh, you know, if you are on his airline and he is flying you, you are in very good hands and congratulate him. Does that mean he can give out wings to little kids now? I think he could probably do that when he was an assistant captain. I don't know about that. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe that's the, that's the, that's the difference. I think it's just captains who can do that. That's probably true. He can deputize, he can deputize small children. Mm, That's true. Jimmy, have you ever sat in a cockpit? Or whatever it is. <laughs> My younger son is now obsessed with the uh, scene in Airplane where Kareem Abdul-Jabbar shows up, which he only Googled <laughs> when LeBron passed Kareem for more points. And he was like, wait a minute. Why have you never told me that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was in a movie? And I'm like, because you're him. not it's old not enough. Him. You're not old enough to watch this movie. <laughs> but it's not Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, right? <laughs> He's a year away from being able to watch Airplane on his 13th birthday. I will show oh, him Airplane. That's going to be a great night. And then oh, Caddyshack when time. he's 14, right? Caddyshack when he's 14? Yeah, that sounds about right. He was okay. good. Yeah, the, the, he really wanted to watch Caddyshack after the Super Bowl when that commercial came on. Yeah, of course. All right, before we get off the reservation completely, our next episode is our 44th election results show. That'll come out on March 3rd. March 
third. Man, March already? God, this year already. Jeez. Otherwise, I think we're good. Go to hallsongs.com. Vote for the songs that you think belong in the hall. That's what you got to do. Please help us out. Please tell your friends about us. We're great. We're awesome. As always, thank you. I'm Tim. I'm Chris. Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong.